Good morning, everyone. I thought I would read a parable from the Lotus Sutra today. Um, I tend to, in the Zen tradition, uh, reference a lot of readings from the Chinese tradition and the Japanese tradition, but it's good to also read some of the early uh, Sanskrit writings. It kind of gives us a little feeling of being closer to the cultural time of Shakyamuni Buddha. And this parable is called, um, usually called the parable of the lost son, but we can call it the parable of the lost child. And I'm going to read it as the parable of the lost daughter today. And um, it doesn't refer directly to Buddha nature, but it's implied. And in many ways, I think this parable is about us discovering and returning to our own true nature. So it's, it's quite long, so I'll read it through and then we can go through it sort of part <coughs> by part. But as, as I'm reading, you can sort of kind of imagine what, what are the, who are the characters and, and the different references, what might it be pointing to, and sort of just get a feeling. So, so the story is from um, Chapter 4 from the Lotus Sutra, and it's Buddha's disciples praising the Buddha and describing a parable to describe how they feel he is skillfully brought them to the teachings. And they call him the World Honoured One. World Honoured One, we would now like to use a parable to clarify our good fortune. Suppose a still young woman left her father, ran away and lived in some other land for a long time, for 10, 20 or even 50 years. The older she became, the poorer and more needy she became. She wandered around in every direction looking for clothing and food until finally, by chance, she was heading towards her homeland. Meanwhile, the father had searched for his child unsuccessfully and now lived in another city. His household had become very wealthy, his goods and treasures incalculable, gold, silver, lapis lazuli, coral, amber, crystal, and other gems overflowed his storehouses. He also had many grooms and servants, clerks and attendants and countless elephants, horses, carriages, oxen and sheep. His revenues and investments spread to other lands. There also were many merchants and travelling traders around. At this time, the poor daughter wandering through village after village and passing through various lands and cities at last reached the city where her father was living. Although his daughter had been away for more than 50 years, the father always thought of her. He'd never spoken of the matter to anyone, only pondering to himself, his heart full of remorse and regret. His thought, old and worn out, I have great wealth, Gold, silver, and rare treasures overflow my storehouses, yet I have no daughter. Someday my end will come and my wealth will be scattered and lost, for there is no one to whom I can leave it. 
This is why he so earnestly thought of his daughter. If only I could get her back and entrust my wealth to her, he thought. How contented, how happy I would be with no more anxiety. Meanwhile, world-honoured one, the poor daughter drifted from job to job, accidentally arrived at her father's house. Standing by the gate, she saw her father from a distance seated on a lion's seat. His feet were on a jewelled footstool. Strings of pearls worth tens of millions adorned his body. Perfume was sprinkled on the ground and all kinds of celebrated flowers were scattered about. The poor daughter, seeing her father with such great power, was seized with fear and regretted that she had come to this place. She secretly thought to herself, he must be a king or something like a king. This is no place for me to try and earn a living. I had better go to some poor town where I can be paid for my labour and where food and clothing will be easier to get. If I stay here long, I may be captured and forced to work. Having thoughts of this kind, she quickly ran away. Meanwhile, the elderly gentleman on the lion's seat recognised his daughter at first sight. Filled with joy, he thought, at last I have the one to whom my stores of wealth are to be entrusted. I've always been thinking of my daughter but had no way to see her. Now suddenly she has come by herself. My hope is completely fulfilled, old and worn out, I yearn for an heir. Then he sent messengers to run after the daughter and bring her back as quickly as possible. They ran after her and grabbed her. The poor daughter, surprised and afraid, loudly cried out in anger, I have done nothing against you, why am I being seized? The messengers held on to her even more firmly and forced her back with them. Then the poor daughter thought that although she had done nothing wrong, she was being taken prisoner and surely would be put to death. All the more terrified and desperate, she fell down into a faint. The father, seeing this from the distance, told the messengers, There is no need for this woman. Do not force her here. Sprinkle some cold water on her face and wake her up and say nothing more to her. Why did he do this? The father knew that his daughter felt inept and humble and that his own great position would be difficult for her. He knew perfectly well that this was his daughter, but using skillful means, he did not tell anyone that this was so. The messengers told the daughter, we are releasing you now. You are free to go wherever you want. Then the rich man, wanting to entice his daughter back, decided to use a skillful means again. Secretly, he sent two men of miserable and undignified appearance after her, saying, go there and visit and gently tell the poor woman that there is a place for her to work where she will be given double the normal wages. If she agrees, bring her back and put her to work. If she asks what kind of work we want her to do, tell her that we're hiring her to, to remove dung and that the work that you will work alongside her. Then the two messengers went in search of the poor woman and finding her, told her what they'd been told to say. 
and she joined them in shoveling dung. The father, seeing the daughter, felt both sympathy and wonder. On another day, looking through a window, he saw his daughter at a distance, looking gaunt, lean, filthy from the piles of dung and dirt and filth, taking off his necklaces, his soft clothing and ornaments. He put on coarse, torn and dirty clothes, smeared his body with dirt, took a pan for dung in his right hand and in a rough manner said to the workers, get to work, don't be so lazy. Through such skillful means he could get near his daughter. Afterward, he said to his daughter, young woman, now you should stay and work here and not go any else, any place else. I will increase your wages and you won't have to worry about needing bowls, utensils, rice, flour, salt, vinegar, and so on. Take it easy. I am like a father to you. You do not need to worry any more. Why? Because I am old and advanced in years, and you are young and vigorous. All the time you have been working here, you have never been deceitful, lazy, angry, or grumbling. I've never seen you display faults. From now on, you will be like my own daughter. Then the rich man gave her a new name, as he would to a child. Then the poor daughter Though pleased with all of this, still thought of herself as a humble labourer. Thus, for twenty years, she continued to be employed at shoveling dung. After that, they, they gained confidence in each other, and the daughter felt that she, had come, she could come and go easily, yet she continued to live in the same place as before. World honoured one, then the old woman, then the old man became ill. Knowing that he would die soon, he said to the poor daughter, I now have abundant gold, silver and rare treasures filling my storehouse to overflowing. I want you to have a detailed understanding of the quantities involved and of what should be received and paid out. It is, this is what I have in mind and this is what I want you to do. Why? Because from now on I, I will be no different. Be careful to see that there are no careless losses. The poor daughter accepted these instructions and took stock of all the goods, gold, silver and other valuables, and of the various storehouses, but never expected to receive a meal for herself. She continued to live in the place where she had lived before and was unable to get rid of her sense of inferiority. After some time had passed, the father saw that his daughter was gradually becoming more confident and accomplished and that she despised her for former state of inferiority. Realising that his own end was near, he ordered his daughter to arrange a meeting with his relatives, the king, the ministers, nobles and ordinary citizens. When they had all assembled, he said to them, Gentlemen, I should tell you that this is my daughter, my natural-born daughter. In another city, she left me and ran away for over 50 years, enduring loneliness and suffering. Her original name was so-and-so, and my name is so-and-so. At that time, when I was still living in my hometown, I worried about her and looked all over for her. It was here that I suddenly happened to meet her again. 
This is really my daughter and I am really her father. Now all my wealth belongs entirely to her and all my earlier disimbursements and receipts are known by this daughter. Well, Donald one, when the poor daughter heard these words of her father, having gained something that she had not before, she was filled with joy and she thought, without any intention or effort on my part, these treasures have now come to me by themselves. So that's the parable, the child shoveling dung. And uh, at the beginning of the story, there's, there's a couple of spots where by chance she comes upon her father. And I really like that it happens by chance. I think for all of us, when we think about what brought us to the Dharma, it was usually something that just kind of happened. Like for me, somebody gave me a book to read. I said, thought you might be interested in this book by D.T. Suzuki called Introduction to Zen Buddhism. I don't know why that person gave me the book. I don't even remember who it was. But they did. I was living really remotely in Far East Gippsland, mostly had farming books, and then this Zen book arrived. And in it was a koan, the first I'd ever read. It captured my imagination. And I looked for the nearest sender. So that was the by chance bit for me. But I think all of us have a little story like that. What were the, what were the things that someone said, something you saw? Every moment is potentially ripe with these opportunities to wake up. So this girl by chance stumbled upon the place where her father lived. So the old man was rich and of course this wealth described here in the story is gold and silver and lapis lazuli and so on is really uh, the wealth of wisdom, the wealth of attending to the here and now, seeing our own true nature, feeling compassion for all beings, including ourselves, and having an unshakable faith in that, a faith born out of practice, born out of our own experience, not out of blind belief, but out of our own examination. Buddha nature pervades the whole universe existing right here now. So that's the wealth of the father in this story. And he's looking for an heir. And in the story, it's just a single heir. He's looking for his biological child. But for us, of course, the Buddha and all the teachers want to share the Dharma. They want everyone to wake up. They want everybody to be heirs. So we can, we can let the ancestors and let our teachers and let our sangha 
share their wealth with us. But in the parable, when she sees the wealth of her father, she's overcome with feelings of fear and sort of inferiority. She feels like, oh, I could not be in a place like this. This, this is too magnificent. This is too beautiful. And I am unworthy of it. And I think a lot of us also have that feeling as we read the teachings or hear the teachings we find it a little difficult to believe that it could really apply to us. We find it difficult uh, knowing that we have made mistakes in our lives and that we have some regrets or maybe some shame about things that we've done in our lives or thoughts that we have even now or shortcomings in our capacity we don't quite feel worthy of the praise that the teachings offer us. The teachings say that we are perfect and pure and good and that any of the faults and failings that we, that we have are either unimportant, like not being good at something, it's just not important, or uh, they're just acquired marks or stains that have come just through the difficulty of life and they can all be dropped away. They're not our true self. Our true self is untainted. So here she feels kind of inferior and the father recognises that in her and then said, uh, then decides to use skillful means to, to, to see if he can slowly bring her in. And a lot of the sutra, the, the Lotus Sutra, is about skillful means. It's sort of an early, uh, fairly strong focus in some of the early sutras. So the skillful means that the father uses here is that instead of being dressed in all these brilliant robes, he, he dresses down, he puts on uh, simple clothes and shovels dung along, well it doesn't say here that he shovels dung alongside her, but I like to think of him shoveling dung alongside her. And in that way she can relax a little bit and not be, not be comparing herself. So it can encourage us not to compare ourselves unfavourably to others and instead just do our task, whatever our task is. And in this parable, she's shoveling dung, which is traditionally um, seen as a kind of metaphor for shedding our delusions, getting rid of our false views of separateness, of an individual self, and so on. Uh, and I think that that's fine. But my association with dung is a very positive one. I really like cow dung particularly, having lived on a farm for years. I've got memories of in the winter, get the slow combustion stove going so you start to get warm, heat up the water, make a cup of tea, and then look out the window and there'd be all the mist through the eucalypts and then there'd be the big pile of manure steaming in winter and thinking 
that's going to be the compost for the tomatoes and the cucumbers and the beans and the peas. This beautiful memory of in the cold, looking at the, through the window at the steaming pile of, of cow dung. We had a milking cow and we were always kind to her. She kept her calf until the calf grew up. We never took the calf away from the mother. We would just get the extra milk that the good quality pasture made possible. And the cow and the calf would stay together. And then many years later, another calf, so it just became a little crew of cows. And it worked really well. We'd collect the dung with a shovel and a wheelbarrow. So for me, shoveling dung has very fond, fond memories. It was our source of food, basically. It provided the nutrients for the food that we ate. So we can also see that in this parable, we can think of the dung as also just the experiences of our everyday life. We can let those experiences of our everyday life slowly deepen our practice, slowly help us build confidence in who, in who we truly are, slowly let the feelings of inferiority sort of melt away as we shovel down day after day in whichever ways we do that. And um, the old man, the father, changing his clothes like that, I think is also um, a little symbolic of how teachers meet students where they're at and sangha meet other sangha members where they're at. That's how we're skillful. We meet people where they're at. And then uh, as she gains more com confidence, he says to her, um, to sort of take it easy a little bit, like you don't have to work so hard. I'm going to increase your pay. You don't need to go anywhere else. You're going to be looked after now. I think that the way the way I, I map that onto myself is that in Zazen, we don't need to try in Zazen to do anything in particular. We can just observe, watch our thoughts, watch the sensations, if we judge ourselves, watch the judgments we're making of ourselves. And in our life, if we have feelings come up, rather than getting overly caught in the actual content of the feelings, we can just observe the feelings themselves. Observe there's a bit of a feeling of loneliness today. Observe there's a feeling a little down today. I'm a little irritated today. We can just observe it. We don't have to get rid of it. We don't have to work hard with it. If we just keep observing, bringing awareness into whatever is happening in the present moment, uh, that naturally seems to be enough. It naturally steers us in the right direction. So the father telling her to take it a little more easy is a little like that. And also maybe we could see it as... Um, we don't need to embellish ourselves in any particular way. We don't need to improve ourselves. We're really just dropping away veils of delusion. We're just carefully shedding delusive ideas about ourselves and others. So we don't have to put in too much effort, just shed 
the light of awareness onto whatever is happening. So she continues doing this for 20 years. She'd already been lost for maybe up to 50 years. So it's funny how he calls her young. She was already about 50 when she came back. And now she's been shoveling down for another 20 years. But that's sometimes how long it takes for our practice to really, really ripen and deepen. None of it's wasted. The ripening is always happening. It's not like it's 20 years before anything happens. Practice is always uh, valuable. And we can practice and practice right to the end of our lives. No need to rush. No need to have a specific goal and a time frame about when something should happen. And then there's the part in the story where he asks her to start doing inventory of, of the precious treasures. And uh, I think this is a little like what happens when you become part of Sangha, you start learning the roles. You learn how to be the doa, or you learn how to be the jiggy, or uh, memorize the sutras. Start sewing a rakasu, taking the precepts. kind of um, a focus starts to come with practice, sort of a focusing in. And in this story, the father now brings the daughter into seeing the seeing everything that's in the storehouse and, and gives her a particular task to do in relation to that. And as she keeps doing that, she grows and grows in confidence. And then the father can see that she's at the point where she's able to hear that she is, that her true nature is Buddha nature. They don't use the words, those words in the sutra here. But he's then able to give her his inheritance. All the wealth becomes hers. All the wealth is already ours. It always, always was ours. We just seem to lose track of that. Think like little children often haven't forgotten that, you know, when they're two years old. And they're saying, look at me, look at me. They're so excited about themselves. But over time, that, uh, that exuberance about one's self in this really joyful, um, self-conscious way uh, seems to get clouded over, maybe by culture. I don't know that it's absolutely inevitable. There might be some cultural settings in which it's not inevitable, but it does certainly seem to happen to most people. And so although this parable is referring really to oneself, we can also, of course, apply this idea that everybody has this true treasure within them to everybody else. And of course, that is our task, is to apply it to ourselves and apply it to others, even when it is incredibly obscured in our mind, in others, it's still our task to see that they are essentially good. The Buddha nature is their true nature. No matter how profound the disguise may be. Okay, I think I will stop there. Thank you.
open it up to any questions or comments. <coughs> Recording stopped. Don't be shy. <laughs> Alex. Um, you often sort of seem to equate Buddha nature with goodness. I do. And, um, I don't get that. For me, it's neither good nor bad. And um, I think I've heard other people talk about it like that as well. So I wonder if you could say where you're coming from. I don't know. I can't seem to help it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes from a kind of a love for everything. Because I know good is a bit of a tricky word. But I just can't help looking at everything and just thinking how great it is that it exists. So it kind of feels like good in that sense. Just it's mere, the mere fact of anything's existence. Oh, and I can see A1 just looking up at us over there. <laughs> she just had a little peek and then turned around. Um, just of anything, even just a piece of paper is worthy of being treated well. So. It's a kind of, I think I use good in that kind of way. Not really a moral, not morally, not a moral sort of good. That everything is just worthy of um, being treated well. So, yeah. <laughs> My apologies. Alright, we'll finish up with the closing chant and three bows. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to earn them. Dark gates are boundless. I vow to them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become.